0: Countrywide on ABC
1: Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've
2: seen the whole agricultural community come out.
1: Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't
2: worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers.
1: We're already losing businesses. Get out and speak to the
3: farmers, the
2: farmers
4: today. That
0: Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio.
4: Hello, Courtney Fowler, with you on Countrywide. I'll be taking you through the next half an hour. Thanks for your company. Well, you often hear how invaluable a working dog is to a farming operation, but just how much would you pay for a top dog to work on your property?
1: i $29,000 twice. $29,000, ladies and gentlemen.
4: Well, as it turns out, quite a lot, and you'll find out just how high those bids went for Josie the Kelpie at South Australia's first working dog auction. Yeah,
5: she was, she's been my go-to dog the last 12 nights. Running the farm and livestock contracting business that I also run. Yeah, beautiful natured, e- easy to use, and she's um, she's one of those dogs that you sort of hard to come across in the current market. That's why I put her up.
4: Also on this episode of Countrywide, we're going to head to the Coffs Coast, where some of New South Wales' largest blueberry farms are trialling new technology to reduce their impact on the environment.
6: If we get the designs right for each possible farming scenario. I would hope that we can get bioreactors out to almost every farm and then we can really protect our waterways and also stop the greenhouse gas emissions.
4: And very shortly, we're also going to hear from a WA grain marketer who has a rather novel way of tracking rising canola prices. All these stories and more on ABC Radio. This is Countrywide. But up first on the program, as we get closer to the Glasgow Climate Meeting, which will see world leaders come together at the end of this month, Back home, the debate on the role of agriculture in achieving net-zero targets is heating up. Agriculture was responsible for 15% of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions in 2019, emitting 76.5 million tonnes. And the Grattan Institute says governments need to start acting now to curb those emissions by including the sector in the net-zero target. So what does National Farmers Federation have to say on this debate? And where is the conversation up to? President Fiona Simpson says agriculture needs to be part of that transition, but she hopes politicians will listen to what industry has to say.
2: So we have a policy at NFF that endorses a um, economy-wide target by 2050, with some special caveats in there in relation to agriculture. Uh, Agriculture really was burned at at the Kyoto tables. Um, We really carried the burden for. Whole of Australia in many ways, and um, some of the, the the carbon rights underneath our soils that we owned, you know, were transferred to states. And there's there's a lot of bad history. I think in relation to Kyoto, we don't want to go there again. We think agriculture is is really successful. We think it's very sustainable and can, can be very sustainable in a low-emissions economy. And so that's one of the reasons why we have our policy and our caveats where um, we're endorsing the role that agriculture can play. We don't just want to be everybody else's carbon sink. We want to keep growing food and fibre. Um, and we, we think there's a huge amount of opportunities for agriculture in the space.
7: Now, you mentioned Kyoto there, and we heard from AgForce yesterday. Now, they had said it's critical agriculture does be seen as an equal partner in these discussions about targets and, and that they're part of the conversation of how all of that is achieved. But they also said they haven't seen that accepted by the federal government, so Fiona Simpson, what confidence does the NFF have that ag will be a part of this conversation and not like, as you alluded to as well, Kyoto, and what we oh, saw there? Oh, look, we
2: have, that's one of the reasons why the NFF has come out with a policy quite early on, um, because it's critical that agriculture is at the table. You know, growing food and fibre um, is Absolutely critical that we enable it to continue, not just in Australia, but of course globally. And so we need to work out a way where agriculture can do that and continue to grow. And that's one of the reasons why right now, you know, we have um, a lot of conversations and we're having many conversations um, with people across the political divide, um, in government, of course, because they are the ones in the box seat at the moment. Um, And it's really important, and we keep encouraging them to look... At the role that agriculture will play as an industry in its own right, and um, and that's you know I'm I'm quite confident that with agriculture so unified in relation to its growth, its its targets, its policies, that you know we will um, absolutely be at that table when these important decisions are made
7: you've mentioned the caveats you've put in place when it comes to this discussion. What do you feel are your most important caveats when it comes to net zero emissions and, you know, what you see will protect you?
2: You know, it's not about shutting down agriculture and just being everybody else's carbon sink and it's not just about passing on costs down the chain um, where it becomes unviable for agriculture to happen. And so what we're talking about there, I think, is a, is a supportive transition um, for everybody to actually move towards this, low, this lower-carbon economy. And it, it's not easy. It's really, really complex and, and difficult because uh, we're talking about a lot of science uh, that needs to, be, needs to happen. We're talking about a lot of contested science. You know, people talk about climate change sometimes like it's a religion. Well, it's not. It's a science. And we absolutely need to make sure that we understand all those different facets of that, and including things like, like methane and, um, and and animal emissions, which of course is is slightly different to carbon dioxide. So you know, there's a lot of work to do. Um, but the last thing that agriculture wants to happen again is for us to end up like we were in Kyoto, where we put our heads in the sand. We said, no, uh, you know, we don't want to be part of this discussion. You know, We do want to keep just growing our food and fibre, but we think it's a load of bunkum. We need to be at the table. We need to be talking about the opportunities and the challenges for ag, because this transition for, not just for ag, but for all of regional Australia and for all of Australia, for that matter, is going to be tricky and difficult and complex. And so that's why, you know, we need to have everybody at the table um, and we need to have something to work towards.
4: National Farmers Federation President Fiona Simpson speaking there with Lara Webster. So when it comes to agriculture's role in striving for a carbon neutral world, should methane emissions from livestock be treated differently to those produced in processes like mining, for example? Lobby group WA Farmers thinks so and it's calling on the NFF to put pressure on the Federal Government to remove livestock methane emissions from Australia's greenhouse gas calculations. Here's WA Farmers President John Hassell
1: Calling on the, the NFF to call on the Federal Government to differentiate between green and black methane Green methane is the methane that's contributing to the atmosphere only by carbon that's being taken back out of the atmosphere by livestock, whereas black methane is that which is being emitted from from you know mining activities and extractive activities such as natural gas extraction, oil extraction and coal mining. So
8: what you're essentially calling on is for the NFF to take up the case with the federal government to lobby the International Panel on Climate Change to review the way that it looks at and calculates methane contributions or emissions.
1: Absolutely. We'd think that the, the green methane that is being emitted by livestock should not be taken into consideration in the same manner because it's a static it's a static gas. It doesn't build up or contract unless the net number of animals that are being farmed builds up or contracts. So, you know, it's not building up year on year on year, which is the assumption that's been made by all of the calculations that the IPCC takes into consideration.
8: How realistic do you think that proposal is and what feedback have you had or are you anticipating you'll get from the NFF in, in putting this motion forward?
1: Well, oddly enough, there are plenty of people who actually agree with this in farming who, who can actually see the logic behind this. And, you know, we think as farmers that we're being unfairly penalised by attributing some kind of longevity to, to green methane that's just not there.
8: The NFF has reiterated its, uh, I guess, commitment to um, agriculture being bound by any net zero emissions policy. Do you think that agriculture should be included or carved out and excluded from any future net zero 2050 target.
1: Well, the, the problem if you ta- if you carve agriculture out is that we don't get any benefits that come with uh, with you know sequestration and all that sort of thing. So I don't think it's right for agriculture to be carved out. But also I don't think it's right that farming should be demonised for any kind of uh, sequestration that we do that we do in terms of you know the IPCC says says that anything is less than 25 years uh, shouldn't be taken into consideration. But now, methane from livestock lasts about 12 years in the atmosphere, but that's being taken into consideration at the moment. So we really need to tidy the rules up to make it so it's fair for farmers. Landholders are the only ones who are able to sequester carbon, the government or farmers, so let's get real, it's only going to be the farmers. So, you know, start treating us fairly, give us the uh, the credits where credit's due and stop penalising us where we shouldn't be penalised.
4: WA Farmers President John Hassell. He was speaking with rural reporter Jessica Hayes.
0: From the paddock to the plate, countrywide
5: on ABC Radio. We
4: well, may have noticed the price of phosphate fertiliser has increased significantly this year and it's not coming down anytime soon. Currently urea and phosphorus fertilisers are trading either side of $1,000 a tonne, which is more expensive than it's been for almost a decade. One of the reasons is the Chinese government is directing phosphate producers to make only enough product to use within the country. Harry Minahan is Phosphate's editor with the Fertiliser Market publication Argus in London. He says phosphate prices had already started increasing in the middle of last year.
9: It was all kicked off by the imposition of import duties in the US on Moroccan and Russian origin phosphates. Uh, which basically led to a shortfall in phosphates availability for the U.S. market, which resulted in trading firms scrambling to locate as as much material as they could get their hands on for U.S. buyers, um to get it in time for their for their season last year. And that's that just got the momentum going. And really, from from that point on, that was at the end of June when the price of DAP out of China was. Around 300, 310 dollars a ton FOB. Today we're now talking about prices in the 630s FOB out of China, and that was the that was the initial event which kickstarted the bull run. And from that point, we had increasing grain prices across the board and solid demand from India and Brazil, to massive agricultural import markets as well in terms of fertilizers. So. That's that's what kept the momentum going, really.
3: So it's quite a, a complex situation. And the mm-hmm. latest, I guess, chapter is the situation with the Chinese export market. What's your understanding of that? We're seeing tweets that the Chinese government has effectively banned exports for phosphate until the middle of next year. What's your understanding?
9: So basically what happened was last week there was an updated policy directive from China's top economic planning body, the NDRC, and on Friday they outlined slightly more detailed policy for suppliers, and they were encouraging them, urging them to ensure domestic availability for the upcoming Chinese season, which tends to begin around November. And It was also in a bid to reduce emissions at the same time. Since that updated policy directive on Friday, it then emerged early on Monday that the NDRC had begun negotiations individually with suppliers, basically to agree to restrict exports from November to June uh, next year.
3: How important is uh, China in the global supply of phosphate? My understanding is Australia imports, uh, you know, more than half of um, the MAP from China.
9: Yeah, I mean, China is overwhelmingly important. China is the, is the world's largest exporter of DAP. And just to put it into context um, in terms of Australia, Australian buyers took around 1.3 million tonnes of DAP and MAP last year, and of that, China accounted for 65%, around 850,000 tonnes of the products imported. So China is the top phosphate supplier into Australia. And if there is a restriction in exports, it's going to have some real um, significant impact on Australian buyers.
4: Harry Minahan, Phosphates Editor with Market Publication, Argus, speaking there with Lucinda Jose. And interestingly, he says the moves by the Chinese government to reduce the production and export of phosphate have nothing to do with trade tension between our two nations. Speaking of fertiliser, technology that's used to stop farm runoff into the Great Barrier Reef is now being trialled in New South Wales. The Coffs Coast produces more blueberries than anywhere else in the country, and it's also home to the state's oldest marine park. It's hoped the innovation will help strike a healthy balance between farming and the environment, as Claudia Jambor reports.
10: Horticulture is big business on the Coffs Coast, but scientists say fertiliser pollution is threatening the environment. PhD candidate Shane White from Southern Cross University found high levels of nitrates in waterways within the Hearns Lake catchment where most farming occurs.
6: So when we were looking at the nitrogen loads or nitrate loads, we found that one of the highest nitrate loads coming off those farmlands um, on the east coast of Australia.
10: While nitrates are great for crops, Solitary Islands Marine Park Manager Nicole Strelly says they can have a detrimental effect on the environment.
3: Fertiliser and elevated nutrient levels can cause algal blooms which can reduce
10: the levels of oxygen available for fish and animals and can reduce the sunlight that seagrass needs to survive. Researchers trialled a system called a bioreactor on cucumber and blueberry farms to catch excess runoff before it enters waterways. Put simply, Mr White says the system directs runoff into a trench filled with wood chips.
6: So within the bioreactor, we're just creating a home for the little bugs that naturally live in the soil. And so what we're doing is providing them with a food source, which is the nitrogen and the carbon from the wood chips, and then they convert that nitrogen into hopefully dinitrogen gas. So dinitrogen gas is approximately 80% of our atmosphere, perfectly fine.
10: Overall, the prototype at the Blueberry Farm reduced excess nitrogen entering waterways by around 30% and up to 85% in certain conditions. Miss Strelling is encouraged by the findings.
7: It
3: looks like bioreactors can be one tool that farmers can use to help reduce the nutrients that might be leaving their farms and entering our waterways, which is really exciting.
10: Another bioreactor was designed to capture excess fertiliser directly from Palwinder Singh's cucumber hothouses. He was eager to be involved in the pilot. I was keen to if I can help the environment in any way, so I got a chance with the council and other organisations, if we can do a trial and it will help all of of us and give a good name to the industry. While the bioreactor was able to reduce nitrogen runoff by 15%, modifications are expected to filter more nutrient out of the wastewater from his hothouses. But he says the research focus should now turn to fertiliser management. I can say the bioreactor is doing a good job. But we need to do some work in the nutrient side of things as well. Local Land Services Senior Officer Sean Morris says work is being done in that space.
6: We always try and talk about the fact that this is not a silver bullet. There are a number of things that have to happen on farm to improve nutrient management.
10: Researchers hope to trial more bioreactors on the Coffs Coast in future.
6: If we get the designs right for each possible farming scenario, I would hope that we can get bioreactors out to almost every farm and then we can really protect our waterways and also stop the greenhouse gas emissions.
10: Back in the Solitary Islands Marine Park, Nicole Strelling sees these trials and other innovations as helping strike a better balance between farming and protecting the environment. Opportunities like bioreactors are definitely getting us closer to that balance. Um, They're they're really exciting
3: ways that that demonstrate that we can improve practices and, and reduce impact on these precious areas.
4: Claudia Jambore with that report. And you can find out more on that story online, just head to the ABC Landline page.
9: You're
0: listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world, on ABC
9: Radio.
4: You're with Courtney Fowler on ABC Radio. Thanks for joining me for today's program. Well, it's been a big week for Melbourne Demons fans, with the Dees winning their first AFL Grand Final in 57 years. And for possibly one of the biggest Dees fans in the West, Farmanco Grain marketer Mae Connolly, it's been extra special. May was at the big game last Saturday, but as she explained to Tara Delangraft, she's also been tracking the team's success against the Canola Prize all year which has recently surged again to more than 1000 Aussie dollars. So we have been having a little bit of fun.
3: Uh, yeah, so there's been a, uh, on Twitter some correlation charts all season of uh, uh, D's wins and D's winning margins uh, versus the canola price. So uh, correlation does not equal causation, but it's been <laughs> a lot of fun along the way. So obviously uh, the, the D's kind of going nine zero. I think we went to start the year, um, just happened to coincide with the canola price taking off from what was already a... Desol nine price above Desol nine price of six fifty. We thought that was good at the time, but uh, as as the D's kept winning, uh, the canola price soared a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, and uh, and more. So now
0: that's uh, that that's been a good bit of fun. And look, it hasn't quite cracked the thousand dollar mark just yet, but it is very close. Look, if you include
3: oil, so I think earlier this week or we nine eighty three for canola, um, and for every one percent of oil above forty two. Uh, so that's one point five percent of the price. Like that's nearly fifteen dollars a ton. So, mm. you know, if, if you uh, let's just go high. If you get something like forty eight percent oil, that's nearly ninety dollars oil bonus. So you're you're a thousand and seventy. So I reckon for most people, nine eighty three plus. Plus just some basic oil, 43%, um, 44%, there's your $1,000, there you go.
0: Wow. Did you ever think that you would see uh, a four-figure canola price in Aussie dollars? <laughs> no.
3: <laughs> so uh, 8 dollars was the previous high uh, back in 2008, and that one kind of happened quite early in the year, about May, and then it fell away to kind of be sub 500 by the time we got to harvest. So canola being canola, you can't really sell much of it in May, mm. um, whereas this one um, where let's just call it a nice even Round, round it to $1,000, where we're, we're basically $1,000 right on the eve of harvest. So hopefully it hangs around there and, and, and or, you know, somewhere near there and, and people can actually take advantage of it and sell it this time. Yeah, absolutely. And we are seeing that a little bit of harvest
0: has started in the Geraldton Port zone. <laughs> they were very keen, when they? <laughs> they were. They were. I think for majority of farmers, though, it is still a few weeks away and it doesn't look like the frost for the main part has taken a huge shine off... Uh, I suppose the grain that is set to be delivered. What are you sort of hearing? Yeah, so there's certainly a,
3: a big areas of dam- damage, kind of through the central and eastern, uh, and even into the northern wheat belts. Um, but the yeah, the, the the southern half of the state, Touchwood, seems to be going okay. So um, e- you know, it's always just so unfortunate when it's your farm that's hit by frost. Um, you really feel for those people. But as a as a whole, um, you know, the WA crop's still estimated at over 19 million tonnes. So um, even with that frost damage, it's going to be a record by a long
0: shot. Mm, and a record price wise as well, as we're saying the canola is just astronomical. I mean earlier in the season it was all due to seasonal conditions in the US and Canada. I mean what's holding it up at the moment? Yeah so still still so
3: with canola it's still that drought in Canada. Um, like we you know their their crops just gotten smaller and smaller. They've only got a instead of having ten million tonnes to export they've only got a couple of million tonnes so that you know all that demand has switched to Australia and we can't even grow <laughs> enough canola to move that demand so you've certainly seen that you know that that strong export demand is is what's holding our price there um, we just need to be able to get it onto boats and and, and get it to customers yeah
0: that that's the uh, that the next I suppose hurdle isn't it actually physically getting it on a boat yeah
3: and that like this is the best possible problem to have. Um, sorry, CBH, um, but yeah, when when CBH are under pressure to to uh, 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 deal with a 19 million ton crop, we we hope to have that problem every single year. But yeah, that'll certainly be the challenge. You know, the the prices are really high for demand that is right now, or the next couple of months, or the first six months of next year. And obviously, we can't put we can't put 19 million tons on a on a boat in you know by by June next year. So uh, sh- those shipping issues may come to the fore. And um, looking at coarse grains as well, some pretty handy prices there too. Yeah, so wheat's kind of been that three seventy, even three eighty mark, um, and, and you know even even ASW holding it at at three fifty um, on a lot of multigrades uh, and feed barley's hit the three hundred a couple of times. So uh, that's all, all all pretty good. I've never seen anything like it. Usually we only have these prices when um, there's a massive drought in WA. So just hopefully everyone can safely get to harvest, get it harvested. The tons
4: are there and, and we can sell it at these prices. Farmanco Grain marketer May Connolly speaking with Esperance rural reporter Tara DeLangraft. And finishing up in South Australia where a Kelpie from Victoria has claimed top price at SA's inaugural Working Dog Auction. Crowds came from all over to watch demonstrations and the auction at Yakka Park in Leesendale. Megan Hughes has this story.
1: i $29,000 twice.
6: 29,000 ladies and gentlemen, third and final, we're going to part ways with it.
11: he goes down, running, done, all done. Josie is a two-and-a-half-year-old black and tan kelpie hailing from a sheep station in Balmoral in West Victoria. She fetched $29,000. Her owner, Alistair Leonard, wasn't able to attend the auction in person due to COVID restrictions, but he says he was pleased with the price and says Josie is a top dog.
5: Yeah, she's been one of my main dogs since she was 13 months old on the job and she's a very reliable, hard-working dog and gives her all. Yeah, she was, she's been my go-to dog the last 12 months through running the farm and livestock contracting business that I also run. Yeah, beautiful natured, e- easy to use and she's, um, she's one of those dogs that you sort of hard to come across in the current market. That's why I put her up.
11: Tell me a bit about where Josie's going because you actually know who's bought her.
5: Yeah, so she's heading up to Mildura to an Aussie White stud. She's gone up there to help him and make his life easier. So he he needs a good, reliable outside dog that can help him get his jobs done on day to day. So she's gone up to Gandale, Aussie White.
11: Mr. Leonard was hoping to break the national record but missed out by a few thousand. Hoover, also a Kelpie from Victoria, holds that gong at $32,200. While that record stands, this event marked the first live working dog auction in South Australia's history. Organiser Kylie Ware said it's a fantastic achievement.
0: We're incredibly proud of that and I think, you know, our area is such a broad area of community people that are farming based so we thought why not and Yakka Park is just, you know, it's an awesome place to hold an event. What does it mean, I guess, for breeders in in South Australia not having to go interstate to sell but to be able to do it locally? Yeah, obviously the convenience for them and us not being restricted with COVID has been brilliant because there are a lot of uh, breeders and, and you know we have the South Australian Yard Dog Association group here for trialing. They don't have to travel, um, you know, to New South Wales or places like that are a lot far further to get. And even you know transporting your dog, if you are a successful buyer, if you're here and it's in SA, it, that convenience is just so much more easier.
11: Lucendale Working Dog Auction Treasurer Carly Ward. <coughs> Local and first-time seller Nisha Shanko has been working hard to train her 13-month-old pup Zuma.
3: I've had her from a pup, she's just sort of a station bred dog from locally around here. She is a beautiful nature dog, really loyal. (laughs) sort of don't ever have to have her on the lead or anything like that. She's always right with you. Uh, Very free backing. She just loves to be on their backs. She'll work in the paddock too, but she's still learning all of that, getting confidence everywhere. As a local, what
11: does it mean to you having an event like this right at your doorstep?
3: Oh it's great. Hopefully we do really well and can continue on doing it for many more years. Lucendale loves the community uh, side of things. We've got everybody comes out to watch and volunteer and get it going. So hopefully everybody supports it.
11: Lucendale local Nisha Shanko. South Australian Yard Dog Association president Lyndon Cooper says breeders from across the country will be watching this event closely.
1: The quality of dogs is quite good. These auctions take a little while to pick up a bit of momentum. Like it could be, you know, two or three or four years before they really hit their straps. There are some very good breeders in South Australia. We, as breeders, have sent a lot of dogs interstate. So I think this will be a very good venue. Lucendale has always been a very good venue for livestock anyway. So it'll be very good for. all all the breeders to be able to showcase their dogs here. And as, as it picks up momentum over the years, the dog's quality will get better as well.
4: South Australian Yard Dog Association President Lyndon Cooper and a couple of young Kelpies finishing that report from Megan Hughes. That's it for this week's episode of Countrywide. For more of any of the stories you've heard in this episode and to listen to the Countrywide podcast, just head along to the ABC Rural website. Until next time, I'm Courtney Fowler. Thanks for your company.